In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, it says, But for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You could probably rightly say that the most important part of a building is its foundation. Every part of the building has to rest squarely upon the foundation, even when you get up into the different structures of the roof. The weight that is carried in a building is usually called the load, the, the amount of pressure that is on it. And you have to take into account not only the weight of the building itself, but you have to take into account uh, people that are going to be within it, furniture that's going to be within it, snow that's going to be on the roof. And so as the building is designed, it has to be designed with all of these weights, all of these loads, live loads, dead loads, they refer to them as in the, in the trades. They have to design the building with all of these loads in mind. If you have a structure, say, up in the, in the roof, let's say you have a, a two-story building or two-story home, and up in the roof structure there is a considerable part of the roof that is carried on one beam, you have to find a path to transfer the weight of that all the way down to the foundation. The weight that is spread out across that beam ends up being carried on just two points, usually, where at each end of the beam where it is sitting on, say, a wall. Wherever that beam is sitting on the wall, they call those places... Uh, point loads, because the whole load of the roof carried on these two points. As you're designing that building or building that building, you have to make sure that that load is carried all the way down to the foundation. And so you have to look at what's underneath that beam. And if it's a wall, you got to have a post in the wall to carry the weight down. What if you wanted a window right there? You wanted a big opening under, right underneath where that beam was. Well, that's, that's usually okay too. But you got to make sure that the beam or what they call the header above the window is big enough to carry that beam, which is carrying all the weight from the roof. And then you have to think about what's underneath that header. You got to look at the posts inside the wall to make sure that they're enough to carry the weight. So you're just basically taking the weight that's on the roof, making a path down onto the beam, over onto the header of the window, down the legs uh, on each side of the window, the posts on each side of the window. Every load within the building has to have a way to transfer that load all the way down to the footing. Well, the reason I do that this morning is not to teach you about building, it's actually to talk about our Christian life, because in the Christian life it's supposed to be the same. The way that we live, the practices that we follow in our life, need to be rested squarely upon the doctrine of the Word of God. The things that we hold to be true must be the support of the behaviors that we exhibit in our life. And that's what the Apostle Peter, as he's writing to this group of people, that's what he's helping them do. They're, they're having a little bit of a struggle because they're going through some suffering in their life and they're being mistreated. They're doing good in their life, but they're being persecuted for their faith. So they're unjustly suffering at the hands of other people. And the Apostle Peter is trying to help them transfer the load. He's trying to help them see where what they're going through, how that fits in their life and how it's, it's okay. And doing that, 
that he points to the suffering of Jesus Christ. And he says, look, you're suffering even though you're doing good. Now let's take a look at Jesus. Nobody did good like he did. Nobody suffered like he did either. The suffering that he went through provided for us the gospel, his death and resurrection, provided for us the forgiveness of sins. And so now these people, the suffering they're going through can help to bring that message of salvation to the world in which they live as they participate in the sufferings of Christ. And so the the actual issue that they're wrestling with is, why am I suffering like this? How should I be looking at this? And he's helping them be able to cope with it, helping them be able to deal with it by showing them that their suffering for Christ rests firmly on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And as we come into this Easter season, I would like to focus on that this morning. I would like to focus on what they learned about the gospel. The gospel is is foundational to our Christian belief system. The gospel, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul uh, defines it as the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He goes on to argue for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it gets a little farther in chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, what the Apostle Paul was saying was that without the resurrection, Christianity is nothing. They were being persecuted for what they were teaching. The Apostle Paul was a hunted man. He's saying, look, if, if Christianity only has hope for this life, if all I'm getting out of my faith is what I'm receiving right now in this life, then I'm to be pitied because I'm wasting my life. Might as well, as he said earlier in the passage, might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And that's the end of it. But you know what? That's not the end of it. Because Jesus not only died on the cross, He rose again from the dead, and that altogether is the Gospel message. And so that is the foundation of our belief system. That is the foundation of why we do what we do, why, why we live how we live, and why we look forward to the things that we look forward to. So as we consider that this morning, this foundation of the Gospel that our faith rests upon, we're going to look at three different areas. The first area that we're dealing with is the work of Christ. Now, as He lays it out in this passage, He identifies the work of Christ in three different activities that we're going to look at. The first activity that He identifies the work of Christ in is His death. It says in verse 18, "...for Christ also suffered once for sins." He sacrificed Himself for us. Now, as we look at that sacrifice, we learn a couple things about that in this passage as well. The first thing that we see is that it is a sufficient sacrifice. This is a new concept to the Jewish people. Because the Jewish people, up till this point, they have have performed millions of sacrifices. Millions of times have they seen the innocent dying for the guilty. So to them, a sacrifice is something that was done every year. It's done repeatedly. Now, why would you have to do it repeatedly? Because it didn't last. It wasn't, it wasn't sufficient. It was actually intended just to be a picture. A picture of what Jesus would do when He came. But notice what this verse says about Jesus, that He suffered once. And the word, the word in the original language means that He suffered once, but it has a perpetual effect. So in other words, it was sufficient. It accomplished what it was supposed to do, which was provide for the forgiveness of our sins that satisfied the wrath of God and provided the forgiveness of our sins. So his sacrifice was sufficient. It only had to be done once. But not only was it a sufficient sacrifice, it's a, it's a substitutionary sacrifice or, or what they call vicarious, meaning that, that he died 
in our place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He was dying in your place. He was dying in my place. He had no death penalty to pay of His own, but He was paying mine and He was paying yours. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ's death was sufficient. It only needed to be done once. He was the, the worthy, the spotless lamb that was required in the Old Testament sacrifices. Lambs had to be without blemish, without spot, to be acceptable. And, that, and Christ's uh, uh, sacrifice was acceptable. It was sufficient. And it was in substitution for us. But as it, as it goes on, it says that He was put to death in the flesh toward the end of verse 18, but made alive in the Spirit. And, and oftentimes, in fact, I know in, in earlier times when I read through that passage, I thought that was referring to the resurrection. It's actually still talking about in His death, about what He accomplished in His death. It's not referring to His resurrection yet, because if you think about it, His resurrection was not a resurrection in spirit, it was a resurrection in body. And resurrection's mentioned a little bit farther down the passage. So we're going to get to that, but it's not yet. It says that He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, so in the spirit He, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So Jesus, while He was dead physically, but alive in His Spirit, it says that He went and proclaimed, He preached to the spirits who were in prison. Now, that word preached is often used in the Bible. It's the word kerux or keruso. It's, uh, it just means to proclaim a message. Uh, officials were often sent with a message. It's even a political term. It's interesting to mention that it is not the word euangelion, which, which is the word we get our word evangelize from, which means specifically to preach the gospel. Jesus didn't go to the spirits to preach the gospel because this is not a second chance for them. What Jesus is doing is He's going to preach to the spirits to proclaim victory. He's proclaiming His triumph in the cross. But who is He preaching to? Let's read a little bit farther. It says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So these spirits that are in prison that he's talking about, or these are beings that it says were around during the days of Noah while he was preparing the ark, and that now they're in prison. They were disobedient to God, and now they're in prison. Who is it? We get a little bit of insight from it if we go to three different places. We're going to go to Second Peter, we're going to go to Jude, and we're going to go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6 is when Noah's building the ark. In Second Peter, we find a little, something that's a little bit helpful. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now, in this passage, Peter is trying to teach them a principle that God knows how to judge the unrighteous and deliver the righteous at the same time. He uses three examples. The first one we read is these demons, these fallen angels. The second one that, that we 
did not read, or the verses in between the verses that we read, are the people in the days of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah are the three examples that he gives them. Now, notice what he's saying about the part that we read. God did not spare the angels when they sinned. It's not talking about when they rebelled against God and got cast out of heaven. Because it says that these specific angels were put into prison. Well, we all know from reading through the Gospels in the time of Christ and the Apostles that demons are on the earth. The Bible tells us that Satan himself is on the earth. He's, he's going about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So all the demons, Jesus cast demons out of different people. I think of the guy that had a legion of demons within him. When Jesus cast those demons out, those demons begged him not to send them into the abyss or into this prison. Well, it's a prison for demons. As we look at the Bible, some demons that are out on the earth wreaking havoc. And the Bible also acknowledges that some demons are reserved in chains. They're held captive. They're in prison. They're in the abyss. Why is that? Well, the days of Noah gives us a little bit of a clue. It says, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Look down at the last part of verse 10. It says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Keep that in mind. Those two things identify what they did. They were... They participated in a lust that was of a defiling passion, and they despised authority. Now we're going to go to the book of Jude, which talks about the same event. The book of Jude, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, rebelling against authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, they're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says that these angels despised authority. They left their position of authority. They left their realm that they were supposed to be in when they sinned. So, what is it talking about? If you read back in Genesis chapter 6, the first few verses, it says that the sons of God went into the daughters of men and married them and had children by them. In other places in the Bible, the term sons of God is clearly used to describe angels, angelic beings. They were demons. And then during the times of Noah, when everything was so wicked upon the face of the earth, some of these spiritual beings actually either married women themselves or probably more likely possessed men who married those women. And then they have offspring that were called the Nephilim. And the Nephilim, it says, were giants in the land and men of renown. Now the word Nephilim means the fallen. And so it's more than likely referring to the fallen angels who cohabited with these women and then had offspring. What they were doing was trying to corrupt the human race because God had promised that the seed of the woman was going to, in triumph, crush the head of Satan, the serpent. Now the demons are trying to corrupt the human race to make it so that that won't happen. But the point that Peter is making in the epistle, his second epistle, and that Jude is making, he's looking back at that time when those angels left their natural realm, the realm that they were desired for. They despised that authority, left that authority, cohabited with women and sinned in that way. And that God, in judgment upon those demons, 
put them into the abyss. That also goes very well with the use of the word that he uses for prison. The word that he uses for prison is Tartarus. Remember when we talked about hell and Jesus' teaching on it and Jesus used the word Gehenna? And we talked about Gehenna. There was this valley of Hinnom. There was Gehenna where they burned the trash and, the, and it was the, the refuse pit. And it was burning continually with trash. And now Jesus used that as a picture of the coming judgment. Peter does the same thing here with the word Tartarus. Tartarus was a term from Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, Tartarus was the, the level of hell that was reserved for the worst of sinners. And so Peter uses that to describe hell and judgment for the abyss. And he describes that as the place where the worst of the demons have been thrown. Because they left, they actually left their realm of uh, where they were under authority. They left their realm of natural sphere that God created them to be in and committed this vile act. And so God cast them into prison, cast them into Tartarus until the judgment time. So Jesus in his death went to proclaim to those spirits that are in prison the triumph that he was accomplishing in the cross. Well, not only does the work of Christ involve his death on the cross, but it also obviously involves his resurrection. As we continue to read, it says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now it points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Jesus in His death atoned for our sins. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. And then three days later, He arose from the dead and we see the resurrection of the dead. Now as He accomplishes the resurrection, He also gives us a little bit of teaching here about baptism. And you've got to follow the flow of thought. He says He's preached to the spirits in prison and that triggers this idea about Noah. Because it was during the days of Noah, while he was preparing the ark, that the spirits did that horrible feat and were cast into prison. But then it looks at Noah and it says Noah was saved through the waters. And then it says this corresponds to our baptism, which now saves us. But he goes on to say the salvation doesn't come from the ritual. It's not from the washing of the dirt off the body. It's not the actual being dunked in the water that saves you. But baptism represents something. It represents what you believed. It represents a pledge of you pledging toward God for a good conscience. So in other words, it's not the act of going through the baptism that saves you. It's the belief that's in your heart. Baptism is an external manifestation of an inward reality. It's a physical demonstration of a spiritual dynamic. Or a spiritual event. So he says, baptism now saves you, but he, he was tri- baptism is triggered by the flood. And what he's saying is when we look back at the flood and we see the, the judgment of God come, and those people are saved, they're delivered through the water, that is a picture of our baptism. And us, as we submit to baptism and we're baptized, we're put into the water, and then we're raised again out of the water, it's a picture of us trusting in the fact that Jesus was crucified and buried, and then He arose again from the dead, and it's a symbol of what we believe. Well, this is the one of the ways that we see prophecy fulfilled in the life of Christ. Remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and they didn't recognize Him at first? And finally, they, He opens their eyes and they recognize Him, and He tells them, how slow are you to believe the prophets? 
And then it says that he began to tell them from everywhere in Scripture about why he did what he had to do. All over the Old Testament. Well, some of that is in specific prophecies that, that teach us, that just say, you know, about like what they did with his garments, where he would be born, all those kinds of things. Some of them are pictures. The sacrificial system is a picture or what we often call a type of Christ. That is a type of Christ. You look back and you see an image of what Christ was going to do through the sacrifices and through the priesthood. Well, the word that we get that word for type or actually anti-type, what you have is you have a type, which is the, the original picture, and then you have the anti-type, which is the fulfillment of the original picture. So you have the thing that was giving you an idea of what was going to happen, and then you have the fulfillment of that. So like with the sacrifice, you have all those lambs being sacrificed, and then you have Jesus Christ that sacrifices himself as the Lamb of God on the cross, and so he's the anti-type to the lambs. He's also the anti-type to the priesthood, because he's the priest as well. Now if you're following me, and I hope you are, it says about the flood, that Noah in the flood, these eight people were saved through the waters. And then it says, this corresponds to, and that word corresponds to, is the word antitupos, which is the Greek word that we get our word antitype for. It means a, a copy, a fulfillment. And so it's saying, when, when Noah went through the flood, that was a picture of our salvation. And you find these all over the whole Old Testament. Joseph, in his deliverance of Israel, he is, a, he is a type for Jesus. Jesus is the antitype to Joseph. Moses, as he delivers the nation of Israel out of Egypt, Jesus is the antitype to Moses. There's a lot of different types. You've got to be careful because the Bible does need to kind of specifically point to them as one. We don't have the liberty to just make them wherever we want to. But when you think of all the deliverers that God sent, 13 judges that were came in and delivered God's people, were just a picture of what Jesus would do for us one day. The whole Old Testament all oh, points to Christ. And that's what Peter is saying here is that Noah, in being delivered through the flood, through the waters, was a type pointing to the salvation that we get to experience. We're saved through the waters of our baptism. But then, as I pointed out, it's not the, not the ritual that saves you. It's what it represents, the clean conscience before God, the pledge of a good conscience before God. And so Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, fulfills the prophecy, the type of salvation that was forecast in Noah's day is fulfilled in ours. As we continue, not only does it point out Jesus' death and his resurrection, but it also completes the work of Christ in his ascension. Because it says, as we continue to read on, it says, who has gone into heaven, right after talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in verse 22, it says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected unto him. So Jesus triumphs in the cross. He triumphs in the resurrection of the dead. And then 40 days after he's risen from the dead, he ascends up into heaven where God has made his enemies his footstool. Now, we don't see the final fulfillment of the practical outworking of that in our lives yet. That'll happen when he returns. But right now, he has ascended. He's been lifted up. He's been exalted. Like Philippians says in chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, says, therefore, and the therefore means because Jesus humbled himself and was obedient to the cross, God has lifted him up. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is lifted up and placed at the right hand of God, the highest position that you can have. 
Now, the awesome thing, this passage doesn't teach on it, so we're not going to dwell on it too much, but the really great thing about it is, you know what he's doing there? He's making intercession for us. And so our go-between is sitting at the right hand of God, which is an awesome thought. Well, we see the work of Christ in his death, his resurrection, and in his ascension. As we go back up to verse 18, we see the wonder of Christ, because it points out that he died once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He didn't die for us on our best day. He died for us on our worst. And if we're going to look see it the way God does, there may not be a whole lot, a huge amount of difference between our best and our worst. But Christ came to die for the unrighteous. You know, a lot of times people get that idea that one of these days I'm going to clean up my act and, and I'm going to clean myself up so that I can be presentable to God. My life isn't good enough right now. You're missing the point. God didn't come to you to see a righteous person. He came to deliver an unrighteous person. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The very people that drove the nails into His hands and feet, Jesus would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who else would be in that crowd? Maybe the guy that cracked the whip that tore the flesh off of his back. Maybe the person that slugged him in the face when he was blindfolded and said, if you're the Son of God, tell me who hit you. Maybe the person that picked up the stick to drive the crown of thorns down into his brow. All of these people, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's amazing. The Bible says some, some people might give up to lay down their life for somebody else that's really good. Jesus went way beyond that. He laid down his life for people that are really bad. He laid down his life to pay for us, for our sin, for our depravity. That's the wonder. And then lastly, we have the wisdom of Christ. Why did he do it? What was he thinking? What was the logic? And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it tells us very simply to bring us to God. Back when Adam and Eve first ate that first piece of fruit, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And I'll say we because we were present in Adam. He's our, he's our forefather. So all humanity was kicked out of the presence of God. We became dead spiritually because we were separated from God's presence. In an act of mercy, God allowed the animal to die in their place to provide a covering for their shame, but they still were driven from the presence of God and from the Garden of Eden. We've been outside the Garden ever since. So why did Jesus come? Because in laying down His life, He could bring us back. He could make us right with God. He could bring us to God because we don't start out there anymore. When we're born into this world, we start out far from God. And we need to be brought to Him because of our sinfulness. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He, Jesus said, nobody comes to the Father but by Me. You know, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, and in the next few passages here, He uses a, a word that's commonly used in the Bible, and it's the word reconcile. Reconcile means you take two people that were enemies and you make them friends. You, you bring them together. And that's exactly what God accomplished in the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead. He reconciled us to Himself. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 and 22, it says, "...in you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds." You realize that's why we do evil deeds? Because we have a hostile mind toward God. It's a, the evil deeds are the manifestation of the hostile mind. It says, "...he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him." So we go from being hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, to go to being above reproach. And all of that happens through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what has been accomplished in the Gospel. Enemies of God are reconciled to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. We are brought close. We're brought to God. That's the wisdom of Christ. That's His logic. That's why He would go through what He went through. Father, thank You so much for this day. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the gospel for the work of Christ that he would come and lay down his life for us that he would that he would triumph over sin in this way and rise again from the dead to give us eternal life thank you for his ascension that he's been lifted up on high that he's got a name that is above every name and lord thank you even as we sang in a song earlier today thank you that it is our pleasure to bow our knee right now before you and to exalt your holy name Father, we stand amazed at the wonder of Christ that He, the righteous one, would lay down His life for us, the unrighteous. And Lord, we are humbled by it. Help us uh, this Easter season to celebrate it with sincerity. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.